It's another Throwbacks Thursday at the Gen X Replay podcast. This is Stephanie Watson with Frankie Hagen talking about a pop culture topic that heavily influenced us as Gen Xers and the things that come to mind when we reflect on that topic. And today we welcome back Peter Flahiff of the Daily Good podcast as we talk about The Muppet Show. As always, when we have Peter on, we have a lot to chat about. And once again, I'm dividing it up into two episodes. Let's get started with part one. Hi, Frankie. Hope you're doing well. Yes. Good. good. And we're welcoming back Peter Flahiff. Peter, how you been? I've been all right, actually. I, I nursed a little bit of a back injury not too long ago, but it is it is all resolved and right as rain. Good. Good. It's great to have you back. And Thanks. Talking Good to be about back. yeah, talking about a topic I think we all are just in love with. I've been super excited about it. We've been talking about having you back to talk about this specifically, but we were waiting for Disney Plus to to go ahead and have it on there because they had announced that they were bringing the original episodes of the Muppet Show uh, onto their streaming service. And I was, I was waiting to, to do this episode to when I could just sit and indulge in a few episodes and immerse myself again before Absolutely. we did it. So, yeah. so I've been excited to talk about I, this It is one. not too much to say that I, I lost my mind when I saw that announcement come through. Yes. You, you knew it was coming, right? I mean, Disney mm-hmm. and, and Henson have been in bed together for years and years and years. Yeah, yeah. And when they started putting the Muppet films up on Disney Plus, I was like, what is the holdup? Right. And, and, and here we are. It's a golden age, my friends. <laughs> Let's go back and talk about like our first memories with the show. Peter, you want to kick us off? Sure. Uh, I mean basically the the earliest memories that I have of watching television involve Mm -hmm. watching the original Muppet show when it was all first run stuff. You know, it it wasn't, I wasn't watching them in reruns. I was watching them weekly. So you'd, you'd Mm -hmm. check the TV guide to see who the special guest star was going to be that week. And, you know, I was, I was two, three, four, five years old when the show was was first airing oh, yeah. so my awareness of celebrities was pretty limited but mm-hmm. i could recognize people like john denver i could recognize bob hope of course as being you know someone that i saw hosting things all the time yeah, uh, yeah. and and the the episode when they had the cast of the empire strikes back uh was no, like mind-blowing i didn't i didn't think life could get any better than that <laughs> Yes. So yeah, it, it's it was a show that my my whole family sat down and watched together every week. So my yeah. my recollections of the Muppet Show are one hundred percent fond memories and yeah. being being amused and baffled. I think in equal turns. <laughs> we did the same. My my family watched it together. It was Sunday nights, wasn't it? Or I, I believe think. so. So. Yeah. Frankie, how about you? What's your earliest memories? I would catch it occasionally. I, my my uh my family was one of those families that was very involved in the church service on Sunday nights. Oh, right. So when it kind of moved up to syndication a little bit when I was five, six, seven, I started seeing more of those episodes. And it was funny because it was kind of in a block of television where they were showing Lost in Space reruns and 
Carol Burnett show reruns. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so I remember watching the Carol Burnett show and going, oh, she's doing like the Muppet show. And my right. dad thinking that was extremely funny. <laughs> yeah. And I, uh, you know, I, the whole, that whole sort of old school theater vaudeville cabaret aspect, you know, especially when you watch the first or couple seasons of the Muppet show, it's very there as you get towards the end of the Muppet show run, it kind of starts to shift to more of like a sketch. Like you can tell early Saturday night live was probably starting Mm -hmm. to have an influence on it at that point. But the earlier stuff is very, very much in that vein, you know, where they were trying to go in that direction. And what's what's really funny is those uh, stars from that middle part of the 70s that, you know, people of current generations wouldn't even know who they are Absolutely. a lot of times. And, you know, I'm sure you guys are the same. It's like we can kind of mm-hmm. pick which ones because of their big pop culture significance, you know, would mean more to us. You know, Robin Williams, of course, you know, boom, we're going to really respond to that. But I was uh, on the phone with my dad talking about that we were going to do this podcast yesterday. And I said, yeah, you know, it's funny. I was back and I was looking at a lot of these 70s stars. I was aware of who some of them were theoretically, but I didn't, I hadn't had the impact of who they were as entertainers. And Mm -hmm. I said, so Ruth Buzzy came out right away. And my dad immediately was like, oh yeah, Ruth Buzzy. Let me tell you about Ruth. But you know, like (laughs) I would clue right in to what type of entertainer the person was and, and how they were known for doing stage and theater and slapstick and vaudeville. So, So many of those people who were people who were probably crossing back and forth between theater and television at that point. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. We're really there. And, you know, and then like seeing somebody like Sandy Duncan, so young. Yeah. Beginning of her career. Yeah. You know, it just, it was, it was kind of mind blowing because you'll have these comedic moments, but then you'll Mm -hmm. have these very serious art moments at the same time in the middle Absolutely. of that show, you know, and then they'll immediately, mm-hmm. you know, transition to the next thing. So it was, yeah. it was a lot of stuff at the same time for a young person taking it in. Yeah. It, I'm, I'm fascinated by, and, and I think Frank, you and I kind of, kind of messaged back and forth about this just super briefly last week about kind of, you know, it, it was a vaudeville show. Yeah, it, mm-hmm. it was a show that was literally just it was set in a vaudeville theater. They were clearly, if you were an adult, uh, you clearly understood that these were supposed to be vaudeville acts, which were always a little bit, you know, kind of wonky, except yeah. that you always had a headliner on the bill at a vaudeville show, you know, stuff like and this stuff just went shooting over my head as a kid. No concept of what yeah, vaudeville same. was, mm-hmm. but but realizing, you know, kind of in hindsight and and you know growing in my love and knowledge of vaudeville as a form of entertainment that so much of television 50s 60s and even into the 70s was basically trying to still recreate vaudeville experiences they just called it variety television yeah i was about to say variety television everyone had a variety show and that's that's a 1000 percent what the carol burnett show was and hers was just the latest in a Dean long Martin. line of like the Dean Martin show. Sonny and Cher. The yeah. Jack Benny show. Yeah, the Osmonds <laughs> had a show. And it was, and people, you know, even through the 80s, 90s and into the 2000s will occasionally try to attempt to revive the, the variety TV show 
format mm-hmm. and, it, and it seems to always kind of fail. And I think it's because later generations don't have any sort of historical depth with what vaudeville was. They're not so rooted no in it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. Well, I've got a bit of an aside. I was excited to share with both of you and you may okay. end up wanting to pull this and use it separately. Stephanie, just as a <laughs> we'll warning. See. Yeah, but go ahead. It was really brought out. I was watching the Muppets show episode. I, I kind of, I watched the first couple and Disney kind of reordered them after a few days of it being on. Cause I think they had to yeah. put it in proper order. So it kind of screwed me up. But then I kind of did that thing where I knew we were getting ready to talk. So I started just kind of flipping through the different seasons to see who might be on there. And I had forgotten Alice Cooper did an episode in the third season. Right. So I sat through the full Alice Cooper episode and I was mesmerized. And you could tell he was having a blast doing it. Yes. And he was so young. Oh, my so young. But uh, what's really funny about Alice Cooper and it is the screenplay I really want someone to bring to Hollywood. And I want to see it be a major motion picture. Alice Cooper was very close to Groucho Marx. He became oh, friends with all the old vaudeville guys in his early days in California. And he would go over that. to Groucho's house because Groucho would call him all the time and demand Alice come over. So he would leave his wife and he would go over. And Groucho was famously unable to sleep late at night. So he would be up sitting in his bed, smoking cigars, watching black and white movies. And Alice would sit on the corner of his room and watch the movies with him. And he would point out like how Beppo or Harpo had slept with some girl in the movie, you know, and and just carry on about different things. And then he would fall asleep and Alice would take his cigar and put it out for him so he wouldn't catch his bed on fire, leave the house. Wow. But whenever uh, he was touring in California, Groucho would bring... Uh, all the old vaudeville guys with him to see Alice's show. So he would have people like uh, George Burns sitting there smoking a cigar, watching Alice Cooper. And after the show, George Burns would be like, oh, he's just doing vaudeville. I used to work with a guy who cut his head off every night. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. you know they, were, they totally got it, you know, in terms of uh, mm-hmm. the production value. So to me, that was like an interesting sort of connection into that I wondered if that kind of drew him to wanting to do it because of his own personal love for. I would assume so, right? Yeah. yeah, it, yeah. I mean, it sounds like if, if he if he was friends with all those guys, I had no idea. That's super cool. Wouldn't that be a great movie? <laughs> yeah. Yes. But, I, but you yes. you can you can imagine. I mean, with with that backstory, you almost wonder if maybe he got a hold of the Henson company and said, Hey, I like what you're doing. Any chance you'd have me on your show, you know? I know, right? It sounds like he's a vibe. Right. So that was kind of fun uh, finding out that information. Yeah. Uh, so with uh, one of the things that I know you're wanting to talk about it, Stephanie. Mm-hmm. Uh, so recently it's come out, you know, some of the things about some of the Muppet episodes, they they have the mature warning labels on them now. Yeah. And, because of some of the things that are considered, you know, cultural appropriation or, you know, are not considered, uh, you know, kosher, I guess, by, by current standards. Yeah. I have a screenshot of it. If you want, I can read it out aloud here. Um, it says this program includes negative depictions and or mistreatment of people or cultures. These stereotypes were wrong then and are wrong now. 
Rather than remove this content, we want to acknowledge its harmful impact, learn from it, and spark conversations to create a more inclusive future together. Disney is committed to creating stories with inspirational and aspirational themes that reflect the rich diversity of the human experience around the globe. To learn more about how stories have impacted society, visit www.disney.com slash stories matter. So yeah, they, they want they've had to, that up on a, a lot yeah. of their stuff on Disney plus. Yeah. And they, they want those conversations to happen instead of censoring them out. It's something that, you know, for those of us who are Deadpool fans, uh, we've always been concerned about, okay, well, if, if, if Deadpool becomes part of Disney, are they going to let, you know, Deadpool continue to be rated R or are they going to allow for certain types of humor or are they going to heavily censor? But it looks to me like Disney is taking a different route. Disney is taking the route of let's not censor. Let's open up conversations, which is very encouraging. I think I'm not terribly I'm not personally terribly concerned about them kind of putting the kibosh on Deadpool only because because I I feel Disney ever since the eighties has been aware that if they want to court wider audiences, they need Mm -hmm. to just kind of be okay with different styles of humor or different styles of content. And I mean, that that's how they created touchstone back in the yeah. 80s they were able to release you know an entire stable of brilliant films under that imprint so that's true that's i true. i expect that they'll they'll be okay with those things as long as they have means of addressing it like that like that great little uh that little bumper that they have on everything now which yeah. again yeah. i'm i'm fine with that stuff as, as long as it means that the content can remain intact mm-hmm. uh, yeah. Yeah. Because I think it is. I, th- I think they're exactly right. There's this stuff does need to remain in play, if you will. Uh, but we do need to acknowledge that it's like, yeah, well, you know, the the strains of humor that we've that we've indulged in in this country for for well as long as it's been around have mm-hmm. sometimes slash oftentimes come at the expense of ethnic groups or you know all, all kinds of different forms of humor that could be kind of hurtful and. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it, there, there's a huge, you know, obviously there's a huge discussion that can go on about, you know, what's what's appropriate in comedy and what's inappropriate in comedy and where's right. the world of censorship and should there be censorship? And and I'm not going to get into that debate. Yeah. Imitation uh, and parody are tough things. I mean, yeah. And, and, you know, and then at the same time, there's a lot of it that was very much what vaudeville and those kind of shows were about because right. you have white American audiences who you would have entertainers who were trying to create a sense of the exotic at times. Mm-hmm. So you would have people dressed in Chinese dress or as American Indians who were not those, you know, those races or those cultures. Yeah. Yeah. And they were affecting accents to mm-hmm. attempt to quote unquote, be authentic at the time that by current standards would, would come off as insulting, you know, mm-hmm. to right. the people who, uh, you know, aren't contextually thinking about what was happening at that time. And uh, it's, you know, that's very much a thing. I remember watching uh, Eddie Foy and the Seven Little Foys, the the Bob Hope movie. And there's a great vaudeville scene where the whole family is in China costume. Yep. Mm. 
you know, and it's a cute song and it's, it's, but you know, by today's standards, it might come off like blackface to the wrong person looking at how that would be portrayed. And so it's its its own subgenre called yellow face and it's a very thing. So it's one of those things where, you know, like taking it and understanding what's happening and, and moving forward. I think that's, that's always interesting, but this has been going on for a while. Uh, when the first DVDs of Sesame Street were released, they had mature content warning levels on them at the same Interesting. time. Same um, reason. Because there's a lot of things uh, from a parenting standpoint that would not fly now. Like in the right. first episode, there's a little girl that's lost and Gordon takes her home with him to get milk and cookies. And that would totally be a stranger danger problem. Right. By today's mm-hmm. standards it was very yeah. innocent very innocent right. when they right. were doing it. and you know er, you know ernie comes off slightly mentally challenged cookie monster comes off like baby's first addict mm. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like there's a lot of there's a lot of things like that that you know over time you know like us wanting to kind of have some context for for what's going on i think always changes but yeah. well you know one of the one of the things that uh most exciting, I think, about the Muppets is as a child, though, really, really, truly believing that those are real people. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it ran from 76 to 81. So yeah. looking back, I would have been age three to, I don't know, I can't do math, but <laughs> so I was really young. But I re- also remember the reruns, like you were saying, like it it ran pretty regularly through the eighties uh, in, in various places. So yeah, yeah, that, that idea that they felt real, like just, I didn't think of them as puppets at all. Yeah. Um, there's a, there's a segment that was very prevalent in the first season, like mm-hmm. constant in the first season of the Muppet show that as you move through the further seasons, it becomes less and less prevalent, you know, barely showing up. But in the mm-hmm. first season, it was a, constant thing and it's called at the dance oh yeah where you kind of have this ballroom sting that plays and later on they would add some other music into it like there was a a little bit of a cover of i won't dance and there's another one i forget that's part Mm -hmm. of it but so the original sting the at the dance sting one i one time as a swing dj i went on a hunt just to see if that was a real track Mm-hmm. And found out that that little intro sting for that, you know, the mm-hmm. was just composed by the famous, uh, I can't think of the guy's name. I'll have to pull it up. He did a lot of the, the, the compositions for the Muppets and for Sesame Street. He wrote like sing a song and all these. Oh, wow. Yeah. Put that together for the Muppet show, like oh. as, as an intro. And then later they would blend it into other standards, at, you know, at times while doing it. But it, it was such a great bit. I always thought someone who did a, a Balboa or Lindy Hop weekend video, Peter, should oh, that'd be cut, cut a whole bunch of those. Yeah. Yes. In between. Yeah. Competition pieces. Yeah. yeah it's, I, it's just one liners. Everything yeah. is just like delivered one liner. <laughs> yes. Boom, boom. Yep. So good. <laughs> and I, and sometimes they will, uh, they will come back on themselves. They're the jokes that keep recurring. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so sometimes they comment on each other and yeah, yeah I love that. 
Uh, and I, while we're on the music, I have to mention Dr. Teeth and the Electric Mayhem, both original songs as well as the covers they did on that show, all were just so good. I mean, How many great it's covers just amazing work. Yeah. yeah. The, the musicianship was always top notch, yeah. really top notch. If you were thinking, oh, it's a puppet show, then you wouldn't be thinking about these, you know, master professional musicians and excellent vocalists delivering this stuff. Right. But there they were. Yeah. And some of the best kind of sequences. Um, I, I know my friend Shana was recently talking about For What It's Worth. For What by It's Buff Worth. By Buffalo Buff Springfield. Springfield. Yeah. She, uh, said that she has a special memory of uh, of seeing that with her dad and her dad was a Vietnam War vet. So right. for him, it touched him like really deeply to see this. And it was so, so such a simple little thing. Like as a kid, I wouldn't have given it that deeper meaning. It was just these, these animals in the forest being chased by hunters and hiding. And, but for an adult who was seeing a deeper meaning both in the song itself as well as in the scene yeah. uh you know it that, that was really touching that was that was definitively my first exposure to that song was that number from the muppet show and yeah. it was it is still anytime i hear the song that's still what crops up first in my head is yeah. images from that bit you know yeah yeah it's the the levels that they, you know, and Frankie alluded to this earlier as well with the with the fast pivots that they could do in tone, the the different layers that they were able to touch on in a a puppet based variety show in the late seventies mm -hmm. is kind of breathtaking. It kind of stops yeah. you in your tracks and makes you realize that you know Henson and and Frank Oz and the and the rest of those people were were really top-notch performers and thinkers and mm -hmm. i think they realized that because they weren't dealing with the quote-unquote real world because right. of the format and because they were puppeteers they had a lot more leeway with what they could do and how they could address things it's it's really fascinating frankie do you have your eye on the the historical uh or the the production notes because i was trying to to remember who all the writers were um, I was looking at some of the notes just just now, just to just to double check. Uh, there was Jack Burns was the uh, head writer for the first season, mm -hmm. and uh, a guy named Jerry Jewell became the head writer for the second season. And uh, the music was performed by Jack Parnell in his orchestra. Okay. Oh. Those were the uh, the big names, and uh, you guys already noted, of course, that the two. Uh, the two biggest names in terms of the performers, but there was also uh, Jerry Nelson and Richard Hunt and David Goles, mm -hmm. who were also brilliant puppeteers who did a lot. And for some of the ladies, uh, Fran Burrell, Aaron Oscar, uh, Louise Gold and Catherine Mullen and Karen Prell were there quite a lot as well. And mm -hmm. so and a, a lot of crossover. I, uh, I didn't realize I was watching some of the first season Ernie and Bert actually did a performance on one of the first episodes. Really? Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't even I didn't, remember I, that. I didn't know that either. I've been yeah. kind of skipping around episodes. So I haven't I haven't binged all the way through. I keep skipping <laughs> to the ones that 
just have that special so. memory in my head. Yeah. yeah. Well, I had to find Menomina first. Yes, sure. there you go. Sure. Oh, there's such interesting history on that too. I, I, I wasn't that like a, the song was originally from Ode to the Swedish Bathhouse or something like that. Swedish, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was know. it was from a it was from a Swedish uh, like a '60s style cheesecakey skin flick, <laughs> and it was a riff that was in it. And uh, then a couple of different jazz musicians added it as tracks because the horn part in it was a lot of fun for them. Mm. So it got added in, and they changed the title. <laughs> to the phenomena, you know, thing when it was retitled, and then the Muppets, of course, picked it up and made it a thing. It's a lot too. of fun. Made it legendary. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sure. that. yeah, that, that's one of those weird things that that's that, uh, uh, yeah creates yes. a very strange story for a piece of music for sure. Yeah. So memorable. I mean, it's a pop culture thing now. Like even people who didn't grow up with the show, or maybe even didn't see the show at all, know yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. And, and I've I, seen I, cosplay of it. It's just... Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think I, I speak for probably all three of us, if not the majority of the people listening, when I say that that song will invariably spring out of my mouth if anyone says something like phenomenon. Yes. <laughs> that word in particular, but any word that really has that cadence and kind of sounds like it, I just yes. I can't help but go do do like it just happens. <laughs> Phenomenon, exactly. <laughs> I can't help it. I had forgotten Same. that there were multiple versions of the open of the show between the seasons. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. The first season open of the Muppet Show is so different than what it eventually evolved into. Right. Yeah, it became a bigger and bigger production number. Yeah, a lot of shows like uh, Family Guy, I think, steal at times from the opening look. Yeah. oh yeah yeah for the the crowning achievement but in the original version the the part that i think more famously like you cut to statler and waldorf doing the why do we always come here you right. know mm -hmm. instead of that you would cut to fozzy the bear telling a bad joke yes. <laughs> and then you would cut back to kermit yep. you know, and he would introduce you know so they kind of they changed the way that all wrapped up you know mm -hmm. It always ends with Gonzo doing something. Better. Sure. Got to have your consistency after all. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of vaudeville, uh, Fozzie Bear was like the epitome of that vaudeville comedy filler. That yeah. guy who came on and told the little, uh, you know, two-liner jokes. Yep. Uh, he, he, was a, he was a great... <laughs> He was a great archetype. I mean, he was, yeah. and again, as a kid, I didn't know that, but yeah. you know, you look, you look back on it decades later and you go, oh yeah, like the, the, the beat up hat on his head and the polka dot tie. He's the stereotype of the bad comic in all those Catskills <laughs> resort, you know, vaudeville shows. <laughs> yeah. And all the way down to his delivery and, and, and ah, that's very like <laughs> sticky. Waka waka. Vaudeville comic. Exactly. <laughs> and Gonzo's the terrible escape artist. Right. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> Is he uh, something up or he like his big thing that was he was always going to eat whatever the thing was it's right. like and i'm going to set this fire tire on fire and then i'm going to eat it right you know right. whatever i'm going to be tap dancing in oatmeal while eating this trumpet like there's always something bizarre 
yeah. except yeah, for I the chickens just, and always something with chicken <laughs> and then you had uh lou zealand and his boomerang fish like uh, yeah. and and it's they're bizarre to say them out loud but then if you actually go back into the history of vaudeville and you look mm. at some of the acts that are on some of these bills it's like yeah they they weren't far off at all if yeah. if at all like any of these people could have been on some vaudeville circuit back in the <laughs> teens and speaking of the chicken there are at least mm-hmm. two songs that make it to the muppet albums that i know of that are the chickens themselves performing standards notably baby face and in the mood oh very nice (laughs) oh the in the mood i remember oh yeah i do know the in the mood one yeah and i have heard people attempt to play that version of in the mood at swing dance events before oh that's wonderful that's great usually their last time djing but that's fine (laughs) well you know people play manamana occasionally yes they get away with that that one you can get away with because it has a special affection <laughs> that's yeah so the chickens had their their mm. time on stage as well yeah i think statler and waldorf yeah you know the hecklers. just you gotta ha- you gotta have hecklers in a vaudeville theater so oh yeah again perfect but his characters so fantastic if you love a good surly old man you yep. know you yeah know, for whatever reason i mean they could probably carry a movie themselves <laughs> you really want to get down to it it's yep. true <laughs> the, well, uh, and they're they're my like you said surly old man they're my surly old man in my head when other people when they're trying to evoke that character yell get off my lawn i'm yeah. the one that's always yelling bring back the bear you know yeah they're all yeah and there that's another thing too like people who didn't watch that show regularly uh you know in current pop culture will see memes with uh waldorf and statler and they'll know what it's about uh i think that's amazing i have to say that uh i i had two questions for the two of you and this brings up the first of those two because it came up in a meme recently Okay. Uh, the question was, why do Waldorf and Statler keep coming back if they hate the show so much? <laughs> and 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 then they, you know, uh, it prompted people to give an answer. Well, I, I'm going to have each of you guys answer what you think. My thought is because they're there with their wives who are in another booth uh, hmm. socializing. And, and so they get dragged along and, and then have to sit through the show. So you created a backstory. <laughs> I created a backstory. I would totally buy that. <laughs> I think, what do you think? I think they just, they enjoy, they enjoy being able to antagonize people on the stage. I think. <laughs> they're there they're to heckle. <laughs> they're men of means. Otherwise, they wouldn't be sitting in that booth. You know? <laughs> the modern day trolls. You know? Right. They, they, they paid extra to be up there and yep. they are going to enjoy taking a shot at anyone who comes through. That's like fun for them. They're just going to sit back <laughs> and they, the show is immaterial because it's really, it's the, their friendship, <laughs> which is slightly based in their desire to take pot shots at people who deserve it in their minds. <laughs> and that's their, that's their evening out. Yeah. I, I, I think I would actually agree pretty much all the way down the line with what Frankie just said. I, uh-huh. I would, I would gather that there are always those people that just like to be the hecklers. You know, there are always people who yeah. pay good money to go to a comedy club 
Mm -hmm. just to be a pain in the butt to the dude that's on stage or the girl that's on stage it's true. and uh and like you know and, and i also love the idea that yeah well they they are they are in a box like they're in a balcony box so they're they're yeah. paying good money for it but you know <laughs> they're they're clearly old they're retired they got nothing better to do so let's go see who's on stage today and and as you say take pot shots at them i i would 1000 percent buy that i love it i think that's perfect <laughs> And the thing is, is that you could probably identify people, you know, who would do that. Yep. <laughs> I, I definitely knew grump, grumpy old guys when I was growing up. And I think the association in my head was almost immediately like, wow, this is like the two old guys on the Muppet show. <laughs> yes. just a grumpy old guy, but he's, he's not mean. Right. He's just grumpy and like <laughs> funny about it, you know? Stephanie, you have not met Peter and I's dear friend Kyle Smith, who would fit in wonderfully with <laughs> with Statler and Waldorf. Yes. <laughs> yeah, he's he's a, a little bit of both. Yeah. Okay. All right. I wanted to figure out it, something I never thought about before, and just only recently started thinking about, but haven't done any research on is how they did their live audience. Was it laugh tracks or did they actually have people watch bits from the show and record? I honestly don't have an answer to that. I, no, I, will, I, I will pipe in this that I, that I found out recently when I knew that we were gonna talk about the show. I didn't mm -hmm. realize that the show had been produced and originally released in England first. Had I didn't no know that idea. either. Yeah, it was, Seventy-three. Henson had Henson had produced a couple of pilots and shopped it around to the three big networks in the states, and all three of them turned them down. Wow! And then uh, a TV uh, TV company over in England took him up on it, and they said, mm -hmm. we, "We will gladly produce this show, but you have to do it over here at Elstree." Okay. And so the entire run of the Muppet Show was actually done in England. And when oh, I found that I out, it that. did sort of explain a little bit why there was a, a peculiarly higher number of British yeah. celebrities that turned up like percentage wise. John Cleese was on. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, Marty Feldman turns up in an yeah. episode brilliantly. Yeah. Uh, the the Mummenschantz mimes who were based out of Europe, you know, mm -hmm. a lot of, it made a lot more sense in hindsight. Like, oh, okay, that, that does explain it, but still surprising. Surprising to find out that it was a, basically a british show set in america that's really interesting Isn't that wild yeah but i had no idea yeah. about you know how how it was produced as far as generating audience response yeah because it was clearly it looks shot in a really tight frame um you know because it's puppetry there are like things that are full stage where you have someone who's full in a full body suit periodically dancing sure. or whatever but most of it was shot in that tight uh frame that you would expect for a puppet and i i always wondered like how much of it is is shot in a, a situation where they would be able to have an audience or if they replayed it for an audience I, that may be something i have to research yeah the 70s so that would still be a laugh track time frame yeah yeah, yeah that would be sure. a, a viable option for sure mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, apparently when peter sellers was a guest star on the show uh he chose not to ever appear as himself in the entire episode really 
dead, he appears as a variety of characters. Oh, and the fact that he did that of all the people who guested on the show, it earned him an Emmy nomination for outstanding uh, continuing or single performance by a supporting Whoa. actor in a variety or music. Wow. <laughs> so that's one of the ones to go back that's and watch great. the Peter Sellers episode just for that. Yeah, for um, sure. That's but wild. one of the things I was talking wow. about earlier was how as you progress, it gets more uh, sketch oriented. And yes, you would have um, not that there weren't sketches throughout the first season because there were. I mean, we have mm. the, the launch of things like Pigs in Space. Sure. Pigs in Space. Yeah. You know, <laughs> which is great. Uh, and of course, there was the news segment. Which, and the veterinarian yeah. hospital. Yeah. <laughs> veterinary hospital. Yeah. The continuing exactly. story of a quack who's gone to the dogs. Like, I haven't seen that in probably 20 years, but I can still remember that tag. <laughs> yes. But to me, personally, mm-hmm. greatest sketch that introduced original characters is still in my opinion humbly <laughs> uh, a dr bunsen honeydew and beaker oh yeah absolutely. yeah <laughs> absolutely talk about iconic today. oh yeah beaker it, it kind of transcended the show uh meet 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 sound yeah. that he makes yeah. <laughs> meet 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 yeah. uh for sure and the fact that he was always the one that was you know, <laughs> getting the, the being fire. blown up or set on <laughs> fire or eaten by something or yes. <laughs> yep, the long-suffering uh, sidekick. Mm-hmm. I have uh, an affection for the Swedish chef. Yeah, because it was very it was vaudeville because it was vaudeville type humor. Right, but it also had just as a character just gave it just had a personality uh, all its own and of course he was singing and uh sometimes and and nonsensical uh i think that a lot of that is uh a tribute to the vaudeville too is that that he's speaking in something that might sound swedish but it's nonsensical (laughs) and an example strangely enough of cancel culture backfiring on itself because there was a move (laughs) against the Swedish chef and Sweden itself stepped forward and said, Oh no, we love him. (laughs) Well, and apparently it's (laughs) it's based on an actual chef from Sweden. Like it was very closely caricatured on someone who was real, who had no problem with it. So, you know, well, and, and they actually used, I guess, human hands. Like someone, the puppeteer's hands was actually mm-hmm. the Swedish chef's hands because he was picking up things and and you could see no, the no, fingers no, moving. And, and uh, Beaker did too. Yeah. Are, yeah, yeah, same. Mm-hmm. And, and that was something that, you know, was, uh, you know, it, they made that, uh, selection to do something that would be more tactile so that yeah. the puppet was actually interacting with, with stuff a little bit more. And I, I always uh, found that fascinating. <laughs> well, and it's, I mean, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a classic local uh, talent show trope, basically to have that mm-hmm. bit where there's the person standing with their arms behind their back and the yes. person behind them that thrusts their hands through. And then the person, <laughs> With your arms around the back is trying to narrate what they're doing, and the person behind uh-huh. them has to try and make it happen, and yeah. hilarity ensues. And it's absolutely it's, 
it's definitely a riff on that bit that we all know and love. Yes, indeed. Uh, so much so that whose line is it anyway? Does does <laughs> yeah. skits? It lives on. Yes. Many world famous chefs have chosen to appear with the Swedish chef whenever they can. Gordon Ramsay. Oh, that's awesome. You know, I believe it. <laughs> he's iconic. You know, whether he's a gag or not, he's iconic. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. That wraps up part one, and we'll do part two next week. Subscribe to the podcast and follow us at Gen X Replay on Twitter so you don't miss our next throwbacks and other fun episodes. Tune in to Peter's podcast, The Daily Good, at the-daily-good.com. You can follow Frankie Between Shows at Dance Frankie H on Twitter, as Frankie Hagen on Facebook, and at his dance instructor or real estate websites, dancefrankie.com and frankiehagen.com. You can follow me between shows at Stephanie Does VO on Twitter. In the description for this episode, I'll include this info and other links about the topics we've talked about. We would love to see this podcast grow, so please help us boost the signal by sharing it with others. It's available on Anchor.fm, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Apple Podcasts. Until next episode, be safe out there.